either listening on T102 or watching us on Facebook Live. I ask this morning that we all stand and we'll start with our call to worship, which comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 63, verses 1 through 8. Please join me in this call to worship. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being belongs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and behold your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. And now we will continue to stand and sing our worship songs. Graves into the garden, ever be we fall down.
Zephaniah 3, 12. I can't see with these glasses. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you, and he will quiet you with his love, and he rejoices over you with singing. Picture that. The Father's love, he's comforting you. He's comforting you, and he rejoices over you with singing. No matter what you've brought in today, set your heart upon him so that there will be nothing but praise coming out of our lips because he's got everything taken care of.
your word says that we are to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we gather here today to do just that, to, to lift up our praises to you in song and in prayer. We praise you, Father, because you are faithful and you are good. We praise you, Lord Jesus, because you died and rose again, and you are now seated at the right hand of your Father and worthy of all worship and praise and glory and honor. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are present in the lives of your people and that you, you are not distant from us. You do not leave us nor forsake us, but you are present here in this place to receive our worship and our honor and our prayers. Lord, when we worship you, we are not just doing it here in this place, but we are joining together with brothers and sisters in Christ all over this world who gather on the Lord's day to worship you. Not only that, we are gathering our, our prayers and our praises are, are being joined with the angels in all of creation, which, which praises you continuously, Lord. Right now in, in your presence, there are angels bowing down and worshiping you. And when we worship you, Lord, we are, we are joining in that song that never ends. And so we thank you, Lord, that we have that privilege and that opportunity to gather here and to do just that. Let us not take that for granted. Let us not neglect it. But let us always be thankful, Lord, that you invite us into your presence too. And Lord, we, we have so much to thank you for. There's so much, Lord God, to, to praise your name for because of your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. Lord, so often at this point in the service, we come to you with our prayers and our requests. And, and if I'm honest, Lord, so much of our own individual prayer lives is focused on the things that we need or want from you. But Lord, let us not forget to also pause and thank you and praise you for your kindness towards us. For the way that you answer the prayers in our lives, Lord, you answer all of our prayers. Sometimes that answer is yes, sometimes that answer is no. Sometimes it's not yet, but you hear and you respond to every prayer that we lift up. And so we thank you and praise you for that. That, Lord, is why we are called to rejoice always, to pray continually and to give thanks in all circumstances, because we know that you are a God who hears and answers our prayers. And so we come to you now in that confidence, Lord, knowing that you are present with us and that you hear us. And we do lift up our concerns to you as well. Lord, we pray for those in this place and listening on the radio and watching online who are in need of healing, or maybe family members who are in need of healing, Lord, we pray that you would work in and through their lives to bring about the healing that they need. We also pray for those who are in need of comfort and strength facing difficult times. We pray that your spirit would be present and comfort them as well. You are a God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles. So I pray, Lord, that those who are grieving or those who are hurt, Lord, that they would find comfort and strength in you. And we pray for your provision, Lord, for those who are in need. We pray that you would supply all that is lacking, both in a, in a material sense, Lord, but also uh, spiritually through your Son, Jesus Christ, in the presence of your Spirit. Lord God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated, and at this time I want to invite forward Maria and the Children for Children's Chat. Today. <laughs> Good, morning. Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. Good. All right. All right. So, Miss Reagan is going to help me today. Come here, sweetheart. All right. Guess what I have here? I have a blindfold. Are you ready? All right. Now, when you have a blindfold on, can you see anything? No, we can't see anything. Can you see anything? No. Excellent. All right. Now, we're going to spin her around three times, okay? And then we're going to then I'm going to tell her what I want her to do, okay? All right, ready? One, two, three. All right, stop. All right. Reagan, I want you to take five steps. Wait, two, three, oh, four. All right, all right, hold on, hold on. You're good, you're good. All right, now I want you to turn to your left. <laughs> Go down one step. Good. And then I want you to turn to your right and take six steps. Good job. All right, turn around and take... Ten steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Stop. You're taking much bigger steps. Okay. All right. Thank you. Now, could you see where you were going? No. And you had to follow my directions, didn't you? Yes. Did you have to have trust in me that I wasn't going to make you run into anything? Yes. 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 And that trust is kind of like faith. Have a seat. Okay. We are talking about faith today, okay? We have to have faith. Reagan had to have faith and trust in me that I wasn't going to run her into anything, okay? Faith, who do you, faith is what we believe, okay? And faith is really hard to, to figure out sometimes, okay? So the Bible tells us all these awesome things about God and that he was going to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for us and that we would be able to go to heaven one day. And that when we believe those things, that is having faith. 
Okay, can we see Jesus? No. We can't see faith. Okay? As as an as a thing, okay? But people can see your faith in the things that you do. Like when you're kind to each other, when you the words that you use, okay? So faith is believing in things we can't see because we know it's real. Well, where do we go to find that out? How do we know that Jesus died on the cross? We read the Bible. We read the Bible. It tells us in the Bible, doesn't it? Yeah. And we know, we have faith, we believe that the Bible is God-breathed, that God wrote it through other people. Okay, and so faith is what we have when we believe. Okay, so our scripture today and Pastor Joel's sermon, I think, today is going to talk about faith. So pay attention and maybe it will help you better understand what faith is. All right, can we say a quick prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these children and their eager minds to learn Help us to develop our faith and to have trust in you, knowing that through you all good things happen. Maybe not right now, maybe not when we want, but they will. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Have a great day, guys. Amen. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, kids. You guys can head back to your seats. As the choir comes forward, I just want to take a moment. There's my bulletin. It was hiding up here under, the, under my Bible. Um, as the choir comes forward, uh, I want to remind you our offering this morning is for the radio ministry fund. Uh, again, we've emphasized this plenty of times, but it bears repeating every time an offering like this is collected, just how important that radio ministry is to our shut-ins, to those that are in the nursing home, and also to a significant number of people that we may never see or meet or talk to. Um, that radio ministry goes out to a lot of people, and we're really grateful that we have an opportunity to, to broadcast our services as a way to proclaim the gospel and either come face-to-face with. So our offering today is going to support that, and we're really grateful for the opportunity to do that. And we're thankful for the choir to be here. Uh, the song they're singing today is, Father, We Worship You. I invite the deacons to come forward to collect the offering.
Matthew 8, 5-13 When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and he said to the follow. To those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done just as you believed it would, and his servant was healed at that moment. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together again. Father God, we are grateful for this opportunity to open your word together um, as we continue to worship you this morning now, Lord, through the reading and study of your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to move in this place. We ask that you'd soften the hearts and the minds of all those who are here in this place, and as well as those listening on the radio and watching online. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you also give me words to speak, uh, words that are honoring and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just want to take a moment and just remind you, uh, we are uh, now uh, 15 days into this Bible in a Year challenge, and I want to encourage you to to continue on and, and keep up with it or, or start it if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. There are plans. Uh, the, the plan is on our website as well as uh, there are printed copies here in the sanctuary as well as in the church office next door. And uh, as I mentioned before, we're going to keep on working through this and preaching from passages that we read during the week. And so if you're following along with the plan, you know that there, we're, we're in Genesis and Matthew, you know, Old Testament and New Testament. And so we're going to be bouncing back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament as we go through this study. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 8, looking at the story of the healing of the centurion servant that Zach just read for us. Now, this passage here comes in the middle of a, a series of healings that Jesus performs kind of through Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Matthew's kind of broken up into different sections. And in Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, this great teaching that Jesus has and shares about what the kingdom of God is like and what it's like to be a citizen of that kingdom. And then over the next course of the next couple chapters in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus goes and performs many miracles of healing. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he sends his disciples out to go and do likewise. But for today's purpose, we're going to focus in on this story from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, this story of the the faith of the centurion. And as Maria pointed out during our children's chat here today, you know, faith is, is not exactly a tangible thing that you can observe in someone, right? I can't just look out at you all right now and pick out people who are, who have 
strong faith or, you know, pick out people who have no faith at all. It's not a visible marker that you can identify on a person just by looking at them. It's something more intangible than that. But it is important, right? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the story of the centurion and his interaction with Jesus. And we're going to look at what, what faith looks like, faith that makes a difference in a person's life. And I think the centurion is a great model for us to look at, both in terms of what his faith looked like and the object of his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So there's three things that I want us to, to pick up on here today. And the first is the centurion's faith was a humble faith. Now, the Roman centurion was, uh, that word centurion, you could probably hear that word century kind of in there, that similar wording. Uh, Roman centurion was a Roman officer in the army who was in charge of around 100 soldiers. So this was not just an a average run-of-the-mill soldier that Jesus is interacting with here. He is someone who had power and authority and status with centurions that are present at key points in the New Testament. For example, there's a centurion who's present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And he is the one upon Jesus' death that looks up at the cross and says, surely this man was the Son of God. Cornelius, his story is found in Acts chapter 10 and 11. He was also a centurion. He's the one that the Lord prompts to summon Peter. And when Peter arrives, he shares the gospel with them. And Cornelius and his entire family believe in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here, again, we have a centurion interacting with Jesus, just like centurions have at other points in the New Testament. And as I said, this is a man of power, of status, of authority. And he was accustomed to exercising his authority over those he commanded. Right? You see that in his response to Jesus. He says, look, I understand how authority works. I tell people to do something, and they do it. Right? He gave orders and people followed them. He was the one used to being in charge. Yet here he is coming to Jesus and asking him for help. This very important person, this commander in the Roman army, coming to Jesus and humbling himself in this way. Notice he says, he calls Jesus Lord here two times. And again, I just want to remind you to uh, be following along in, in your own Bibles. I hope you have a chance to do that here today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's pew Bibles there. But I do want to encourage you to follow along with us as we study the Word together. He says, he calls Jesus Lord two times. Now imagine the scene here. This is a Roman centurion, an officer in the Roman army, coming up to uh, what seems like a Jewish peasant, in calling him Lord, right? That's a radical scene here before us. We often view Jesus from this side of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? We look back at stories like this and we, we understand who Jesus is, that he is the Lord of all creation, right? That he is resurrected in glory and alive today. And we, we take that view of him and kind of transpose it back on these stories from the gospels. But the Roman centurion had no idea that's who Jesus was. He had heard rumors of healings and miracles that Jesus had performed. But for all intents and purposes, this was a, a, a Jewish peasant, right? A carpenter. And he was a Roman soldier, a Roman officer. Yet he comes to Jesus and twice calls him Lord. He humbles himself. 
by coming to Jesus in this way. He had a humble faith, and we need to have a humble faith as well when we approach Jesus. You see, the centurion recognized that he had a need that could not be solved any other way. Again, he had resources available to him. I would imagine that this servant of his had seen a doctor, had, had all those other options uh, run their course. The text doesn't say that, but you can only assume that that was the case. And here now we see the centurion coming to Jesus, recognizing his need. You see, you need to recognize your need before you can get the help that you need. And that only comes through humility. We need to set aside our, our self-centered pride and go to the one who's able to help us. You know, I think of programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and stuff like that, right? What is the, the first step in that 12-step program? To acknowledge that you have a problem, right? If you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you stand up and you say, you know, my name is Joel and I'm an alcoholic, right? Not really, I'm just using that as an example here, right? And so you, you acknowledge your need. You need to do that before you can get the help. I mentioned that these stories of healing come on the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, in the, the very first beatitude that Jesus shares in that teaching, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the poor in spirit are those that are spiritually bankrupt. They know that they have nothing to offer. These are the ones who know that they cannot save themselves. They recognize their need for Jesus and turn to him. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to recognize that you cannot save yourself, that you have a need that you cannot meet. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. It's taking the focus off of yourself. You know, true humility is not beating yourself up. It's taking the focus off yourself and putting it on Jesus where it belongs. And Scripture promises that when we do that, when we humble ourselves, the Lord will meet us in that and lift us up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, again, that's 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Right, what a great promise that is. That when we humble ourselves before the Lord, when we acknowledge our need and go to him, it says that he will lift us up. And then he says that, that we have the, the ability, the freedom to cast our anxiety on him. We live in an anxious age, don't we? We live in an age with a lot of anxiety, whether we realize it or not. We worry about plenty of things. And if you're anything like me, sometimes that worry can get overwhelming, right? And you can struggle, that can, that can impact how you view the world or how you live your life. And so we have this promise in Scripture that if we, if we just go to the Lord, if we cast our anxiety on Him, He's going to help us in that. And the promise we have is that He cares for us. We can come to Jesus with confidence because we know that He loves us and cares for us. And so we approach Jesus like the centurion with a humble faith. We also see that we're called to approach Jesus with a confident faith. Yes, of course, we need to recognize our need, but that should also lead to recognizing the only one who can meet 
that need. The centurion had a problem, right? His servant was sick, and so he goes to Jesus. The only one he believes can fix that problem. And the reason for that is because the centurion recognized that Jesus had authority. Right, I talked about this before. The Roman centurion was an officer who understood how authority worked. He understood what it meant to give commands. And so he tells Jesus that all you need to do is say the word. Say the word and my servant will be healed. Now I think that that phrase there is there intentionally because it is often through the word that God acts. Think about how God created everything. All things that that have existed, do exist, and will exist were created through the word of God. You see it in passages like Genesis 1, of course, but also Psalm 33, 6. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God in his power and his sovereignty spoke and it came to be. That is power, that is authority. Jesus in Matthew 8, verses 23 and 27, just later on in the same chapter, and if you're reading the narrative of the story, most likely very on this same day, Jesus calms the storm. Jesus and his disciples go out onto the boat, right? And in the middle of the lake, the the winds pick up and the storm rages. And Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat, of course. And his disciples wake him up and in fear that they will be capsized and drowned. And Jesus rebukes the storm. Again, with a word from his mouth, the waves and the wind stop immediately. With the sword of his mouth, Revelation 19 says, that sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, of course, represents the word of God. I love the line in Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, at the end of the third verse, speaking of the, the final defeat of the enemy, it says, His, Satan's doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word from the mouth of God, from the mouth of Jesus, will defeat the enemy. God's word has power. The words of Jesus have authority. And so the centurion understood this. He understood that all he had to do, all Jesus had to do was speak a word, and it would happen. And at the end of Matthew 28, we see Jesus himself claiming all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The Father has invested all of his authority in Jesus. And so that confident faith leads to believing faith, right? This is kind of the other side of that same coin. We have confidence to go to Jesus because he is the one that we need. And that faith then leads to belief. Jesus tells the centurion that a servant will be healed Look at this at the end of this passage. Just as you have believed it would. That's verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. Now reading the Gospels and the stories of Jesus' miracles, whether healing, particularly with healing, you see that belief is a key component in Jesus' ability to do something. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, Because... Because you have, um, excuse me, he says, truly I tell you that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Mustard seed were were tiny, tiny seeds. 
Jesus says, if you just have that small amount of faith, amazing things can happen. And we see the opposite is true at times as well. In Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, this is Jesus returning to his hometown in Nazareth. And while he's there, it says that he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Notice the contrast between Jesus and interacting with people from his hometown and Jesus with a centurion. With a centurion, he was amazed at his faith. And the people of his hometown, he was amazed at their lack of faith. And because of that, Jesus was unable to do much in Nazareth because the people didn't believe that he could. And then probably my, fav- my favorite example of this is Mark chapter 9. When Jesus interacts with a desperate father who only wants his son to be healed. And Jesus asks, do you believe? And the man responds, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that is a great picture of what faith in Christ looks like. Belief that Jesus is able to do something. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, I trust you, Lord. I trust that you're able to do this. I trust that you can. I may not understand how or why, but I trust you. I believe the key in all of this conversation and confident and believing faith is not the quality or the quantity of a person's belief. It's the object of their belief. Here's what I mean by that. It's not, it's not about mustering up enough belief in and of myself in order to make God do something for me, right? It's not about naming it and claiming it. It's not about just a, a sheer force of goodwill. That's not how it works. It's not, about, it's not about me as a person and what I'm able to accomplish by my goodwill or my belief or my faith. It's about the object of my faith, and that is Jesus Christ. I think one of the worst things that you can say to someone who is suffering is just say you need to have a little bit more faith. Right? Don't put that burden on somebody. Don't put that burden on, on, on the shoulders of someone who's already suffering and already struggling. Instead, we need to refocus our, refocus our attention not on ourselves, but on the one we put our faith in. We put our faith in Jesus, who is able to do all things, who can heal the sick and raise the dead and calm the storm. Nothing is beyond his ability to accomplish. But of course, there's a tension here, isn't there? There's a tension in this conversation about confident and believing faith. And here it is, right? If Jesus is able to do all things, if he has all authority in heaven and earth, and just a simple word from his mouth is able to heal, heal a servant from a long distance, if everything has come into existence through his power and being, if Jesus is able to heal and you approach him with humble and confident faith like the centurion does, then why doesn't Jesus heal when we ask him? And I can stand up here and say, I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I could give you an easy answer that made some sense of all the tragedy and heartache that people experience in this world. But what I can do is point you to the story of Job. Job is a righteous man who lost everything. God allowed Satan to take away his family, his wealth, even his very own health. 
And even after all that, Job didn't accuse God of wrongdoing. But he did have some questions for him, didn't he? The question the book of Job wrestles with is the same one that we wrestle with today. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why doesn't he just make all of our problems go away? At the end of the book of Job, God finally does show up and speak to Job. But he doesn't address the question directly like we wish he would, right? We just want the clear, simple, easy answer. Instead, he reminds Job that the Lord is the creator and sustainer of all things, that he laid the foundations of the world, and that he is the one in charge. In other words, he tells Job that there are just some things that are above his pay grade. And here's the bottom line. Right? I trust that if a loving and all-powerful God does something, excuse me, allows something to happen in my life that I don't understand, then I also trust that God has a purpose that is beyond my ability to understand in this moment. I trust that he can and does use all things, even illness, even tragedy, even heartache, for his glory and for our good. And here's how I know that. Because God himself, the same God who appeared to Job in the tempest, now appears to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that person willingly, that, that God willingly experienced the suffering rejection, and death for us. He doesn't remain separate and aloof from our suffering. He enters into it. And more than that, he bore the eternal punishment for our sin, the wrath of God towards sin poured out on him at the cross. And in that act, his death and his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and the effects of sin. Yes, even illness, even cancer, even death itself have been defeated. And one day they too will be a thing of the past. See, here's the one thing I do know, that illness and death and tragedy and grief do not have the final word. Jesus does. And even if your healing doesn't come in this lifetime, know that it will in the next. And so we don't have easy answers as Christians. But we have confidence that God is good and that he is loving and that he is sovereign. And even if we don't understand why things happen the way they do, we can still trust that he is in control. That is confident. In and finally, I want to talk about saving faith. The centurion expressed humble faith. He expressed confident and believing faith. And finally, he expressed saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus emphasized the faith of the centurion. Like I said before, he was amazed by it and says, no greater faith has been found in all of Israel. That's a pretty powerful statement, right? It's one thing for a pagan Roman officer like the centurion to come to Jesus and call him Lord. It's another thing entirely for Jesus to commend that person for their faith over and above the people of Israel. You see, what Jesus is, is emphasizing here is it's faith that is the basis for entry into the kingdom of heaven. He says that people from outside of Israel are going to be welcomed into the kingdom while subjects of the kingdom, in other words, you know, Israelites who, who don't believe in Jesus, they're the ones who will be kicked out. See, every country, every nation has citizenship requirements. If you want to be a citizen of the United States, there's two ways you can make that happen, right? You're born here or you could be naturalized as a citizen. And there are certain requirements that you have to meet, including residency and competency and, and understanding the basic 
ideas of the United States government and constitution, but there are certain requirements, right, that you need to meet in order to be a citizen of the United States. Some may come naturally through birth, but some may be accomplished through good works. And that's how, so, that's how we sometimes view citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? We believe, that, we believe that some people are just born into it, that because they were born into a, a believing family and raised in the church, that it's just automatically bestowed upon them. And there's some people that think that if we just do the right things or say the right things or give enough money, then, then, then we can become part of the kingdom of God through our good works and our actions. But Jesus reminds us here, and the scripture as a whole testifies that, that it's not our good works, it's not our birthplace that define our place in God's kingdom. It is saving faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith is the defining characteristic of God's people. And you see that in passages like Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul there says that our person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew. In other words, a person is a, a, a member of God's family who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. In other words, it's always been about our heart, right? It's always been about uh, our, our focus, the, uh, our worship of the Lord, our commitment to him. You see, the people that were most attracted to Jesus' ministry were the people you'd least expect, the tax collectors, the sinners, the outcasts, the people who were desperate, the people who knew that they needed a Savior. And the people who typically opposed Jesus were the ones who thought they had it all together, that were confident in their own salvation, that thought that had a lot, excuse me, the ones that had a lot to lose. But here's the thing, right? Saving faith requires letting go of the things that you think are going to save you, your good works, your money, your pride, in order to hold on to the one thing that can save you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, Jesus tells his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? See, that's the key. That's, that's saving faith right there. Putting all your trust in Jesus. Truly believing that he is the one who can save you. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul, says, Paul puts it this way. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I want to give us an opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus here this morning. Again, this faith isn't something tangible that you can see. It's not about doing certain things or acting a certain way, but it's about putting your faith and the one who can save you. It's about being humble and recognizing your need for him. It's about being confident that he is the one who can save you and about putting your trust in him. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray and, and the praise team is going to come forward for our, our final song, but I'm going to pray and, and acknowledge 
our need for the Lord, our collective need for Him. Whether you've been following Him for decades or whether you've, been, you've never put your trust in Him before, we all need to acknowledge our need for the Lord. So I invite you to pray with me now. Father God, we come before you now and humbly and confidently look to you. Lord God, we, we need you. We are sorry for the ways that we've fallen short. We're sorry that we, are, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And so in, in, in humility, we come to you and confess our need for you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We thank you that his death and his resurrection paid for my sin, paid for our sins. And through him, we are forgiven. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. And we ask now that you also would help us to love you and to, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to live for you from this point forward. Help us to deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross and follow you. Help us to build our lives on your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand and join us as we close our service by saying, build my life.
and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus that even after you've suffered for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may go in peace.